On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with an abuse survivor named January. And January was in a toxic relationship with a guilt-tripping manipulator. It's a story of gut feelings, core values, seeing potential, financial abuse, and being adored until you say no. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. I am Brandon Chadwick, and with me today, we have January. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Well, everyone, January and I originally started recording in February, I think, and we were about like, I'm going to say 15 minutes in, 20 minutes in. 15 minutes in, yeah. And then there was a power outage. And now it's six months later, pretty much, or five months later, and we're back. Um, That was a really long power outage. It was a long power outage. (laughs) But yeah. So today we are going to hear January's story, and January's story is not a full textbook type story that we mostly hear on our show. Uh, Her abuser was this money-oriented person and falls more into the con man kind of uh, manipulation uh, tactics, and if you know those types of stories... Uh, most of the time with them, nothing is is going on uh, uh, most of the time until somebody says no to something, and then things get really uh, bad. So th- that's this kind of story that you're about to hear. Uh, also, uh, with January's story, we had to take out um, or are taking out these uh, little nitty uh, gritty details and spots because they are identifiers. So just a big note about that so you don't get confused about things. And besides that, I think that is it. So now, without further ado, January the floor is now yours. All right. So um, it's, I'm not really even sure where to begin with this. I'd start off that uh, before the relationship, um, you were a single mom. Mm-hmm. Yep. And um, you uh, had some good things happening in your career. Yeah, I had things were great. Um, yeah, I, things were going really, really well. I'm a pediatrician, and um, things were going swimmingly for me. I have, I'm a single mother. I have children. Some of them have some significant high needs. It was COVID. I was isolated. Things started to be a little harder. And the most important thing I think to take away from like the early staging of all of this is that I was a person who was extremely competent and at my work and my life who had been thrust into a situation that made me vulnerable. So I was in an interesting place of being both very competent and able, but at that moment, very vulnerable. And that is the moment that I encountered this person um, who would wreak havoc um, in my life, um, you know, for some time. And, and before you went into this relationship, um, what were your beliefs about relationships? How are you feeling about yourself? 
and um, based on previous relationships, were you looking for something that the other ones were lacking and kind of going opposite end of the spectrums in these cases? Yes. I, I mean, I can say now looking back that I was very much, I was very focused in what I was looking for. You know, I had had relationships that were sort of emotionally empty, maybe not really emotionally available. I had relationships with men who were not, who were uh, aggressive, not, not mean, but like just very charismatic and aggressive and, you know, powerful men. And that didn't work out. And so I was thinking, oh, you know, I want something that's going to be very emotionally fulfilling. Um, but I also want the person to be safe. I want them to be harmless. I want them to be somebody who I know is not going to, you know, hurt me or do these bad things. So I, I know I was looking for somebody who was vulnerable um, themselves and who appeared that way. And that's when I came across this, this person um, because I was, I was specifically looking for something that was very different from the kind of relatively high powered men that I had known before who were emotionally not available. So I found something very different. And it also says here that you're a feminist. Yes, I am a feminist and I believe in gender equality, which is also part of my downfall here. Because when it's, you know, I'm a, I'm, of course I'm a feminist and I, um, I believe in, you know, that it doesn't, that the man doesn't have to be the breadwinner. I mean, I believe in an equal, equal partnership, but that's, and that's also a very easy thing for somebody who is out to take advantage to exploit, I think. Yeah, because it says here you let your down, you let your guard down around woke intellectual yeah. men. What does that mean? Well, I think that um, I think that we as human beings have what's called sort of feelings of safety around affinity groups, right? So, people who are in your affinity groups, people who are in your community, people who are in your religious group, people who are kind of part of your sort of educated bourgeois, you know, woke, liberal enclave, um, you are tending to ignore red flags there or give people a pass there that you might not otherwise do because they are safe and they are in group. And there's actually a phenomenon, and I'm not a psychologist, but there's a phenomenon in psychology, which is called affinity fraud, where people seek out, specifically seek out people in their affinity groups with the idea that they're going to be able to pull the wool a little bit faster and easier because they're been, they have sort of pre-clearance, right, because they're in these groups. So, you know, you have the people who, um, you know, politically and otherwise sort of in your caress, in your group, um, that that you're, you're less suspicious of automatically. So I would say that all of, you can see all of these things kind of lining up to create a perfect storm for being taken advantage of. Absolutely. So I met, I'm going to call him Simon, the student um, I met Simon um, during the pandemic. Um, I met him through an affinity group that I'm not going to disclose here. Um, and it started out as an online on messenger on, you know, running around kind of, kind of relationship. And um, I felt like I had been struck by lightning when we first started talking, you know, he was all the, the things that I, I wanted in terms of harmless, smart, good politics, self-effacing, um, funny, brilliant, just really great, really, really great guy. Um, and I was, again, very, very vulnerable. And the red flags popped up almost immediately, but I pushed them down because I thought, you know what? Um, you know, I found this really, really great guy and I, and I'm, I really need somebody and I am going to, I'm not going to judge because I'm not going to, I don't want to be materialistic or classist or any of these things, I'm just going to kind of let it go. And I'll get to those red flags in a minute. But, um, you know, it, it, 
I was so, um, for someone, I consider myself to be a very bright person and I was thoroughly and completely taken. Absolutely. Um, the emotional sort of, um, it's textbook, you know, he he told me he loved me immediately. Um, and it was very heartfelt and it was very beautiful and it felt very real. And I still look back on that. And I think there were probably parts of it that were real because, you know, people can't fake that, but over the internet, over the phone, over video, yes, you can. Yes, you can. Absolutely. Um, there was a lot of talk about marriage and commitment very early on, very, very early, much more, you know, prematurely to what an in-person relationship would have evolved. And I, I think that COVID and the COVID conditions created a lot of sort of, they, they took away a lot of our fail-safes because the world was so absurd. And this was also during the election, right? So it was this crazy time with Biden and Trump and the COVID and the world was ending and it was, oh my God. Um, so that created a lot of kind of emergency conditions by which people would do things they wouldn't ordinarily do. And that's not to make an excuse for my doing this, but I think it created the conditions by which you can forget these things. So it was a lot of what people call love bombing, right? Um, a lot of very sincere, very over the top, loving, um, overwhelming emotional content. And I look back now, and of course I have the whole relationship, you know, in text format and I can go back and read it. Um, I look back now and I see how skillfully um, the emotional kind of content was applied um, and to which anytime I balked or anytime I kind of pushed back or said, you know, you know, no, um, you know, I need this to slow, slow down. And not in those words, because I, it was, again, anytime I expressed any need to like, just not, okay, he would be sad, right? Because he's very, He's the he's a victim. He's sad. Everyone in his life has hurt him. He's had all these bad things happen. And I didn't want to do that. You know, I loved him um, genuinely. And so I, I could see myself censoring myself and not pushing back or not saying, hey, this is moving too fast. Or, hey, I can't talk on the phone every night. Or, hey, you know, um, it became very difficult. So that was kind of the way things were set up. But I didn't even know that was going on. I had no idea that that I was responding in this, in this way. And to be completely fair, I should have been a much better communicator. And I spent a lot of time sort of thinking about the ways in which I could have put the brakes on things very, very early, but I, but I was, you know, I was completely vulnerable and I was completely played. And so I'm going to say that, 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 that is, you know, I'm going to give myself some grace there. And about two and a half to three minutes ago, you said three words and I had to type it down. So I didn't forget what, which was, I needed someone or somebody or I need somebody. So what does that mean? Well, you know, I needed someone in my, I mean, here I was with all these children during a pandemic. I was very lonely. I mean, there's, you know, I'm, I, and again, you see this again and again and again, I'm a very confident professional woman who is a, a good earner and successful in her field, but at the same time has the vulnerability around being desirable, being lovable, um, you know, my appearance, my, you know, all this other stuff. And then add to that the pressures of the pandemic and the fact that when you're caring for children, and in my profession is actually a caring profession. So when you're taking care of other people and their needs all day, every day, and no one's there to take care of you, you're set, you really want that. And that was something, and of, and of course he, and again, I, I don't, I think there's levels of consciousness here in terms of what people, what men who are like this are doing on purpose and what is just a strategy that's been played that like an animal, they, they do it. Um, I think that he got me to tell him all of this. I mean, I, I'm a very open, I tell people everything. I have no secrets, but I, um, it's like I gave him the blueprints to, you know, <laughs> to me and then he used them 
um, I told him everything. So of course he knew I needed someone. He knew that I had this very romantic sensibility. He knew that I was all of these things and um, he played it. He used it and I gave it to him. Yeah, like I already know what your Enneagram is because you took the Enneagram test. Right, I did. (laughs) But even within the first 14 minutes, I don't think I would have needed the Enneagram test to know what your Enneagram was. No, no, I'm pretty, I'm pretty much an open book and I'm terribly unsophisticated. So I I would. (laughs) Well, you're articulating everything as far as your needs and wants, um, very clearly. Mm -hmm. And yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, and, and again, I have, you know, I have a very, I have very, and you will find out how strong I have very, very good intuition, very good intuition, like a lot of mothers, like a lot of women, like a lot of people. And if he had been an aggressive man, a man who frightened me, a man who in any way tipped off any of those, like, this is a violent man, this is a scary man, I would have never told him these things, but he didn't. He was harmless. In fact, he was more than harmless. He himself was almost disabled by his own victimhood. He had had all these terrible things happen and all, and I'm a, I'm a mother, right? And there's a reason why they like mothers because we will wear the macaroni necklace, you know, to, to brunch, right? We will, we believe in unconditional love and we see the wounded thing and we want to help. And um, that said, I do have to give myself props because until the, you know, until the last time I went back and I did go back twice, um, until the last time I went back, I was very, very good at keeping things, keeping some boundaries, you know, very early on in the relationship. Um, you know, he called me up in the middle of the day and said that his anxiety and depression were out of control and he was having a horrible, horrible time. And of course I felt terrible because that's, I mean, people struggle with these things and those are real. Um, and he said, I said, oh my God, sweetheart, what, what can I, what can I do? How can I help? And he said, I don't have any money. And I was like, oh God, here it is. This is this perfect man. This is the, the fly in the ointment. This is the worm in the apple. I have found it. And I was devastated. So I thought, oh God, I have children. I'm a professional. I cannot have this. And I waited and I waited for the ask because he knew, you know, that I was successful and um, successful, but a single parent. So like there's, you know, um, and also he knew that I was extremely generous and would do anything for him. And I knew that he knew that. And so he said, I, you know, I can't pay the co-pays on my uh, medicine. I can't do these things that I need to do. And I was like, oh my God. And so I took a deep breath. I said, you know what? You're really, really smart. I know you're going to figure something out. And I stopped the conversation there. Um, and it kind of continued. There were a couple more phone calls. At that point, I decided that even though I was head over heels with this, this man, head over heels in love with him, um, I had to stop it because I, I you know, this is the vulnerable, the precarity that I could sense was overwhelming. And so I talked to him on the phone. I said, look, Simon, um, you know, I, um, I don't think I, I don't think this is a good idea for us to continue this, this thing that we've got going on. I feel like, you know, you're too far away. It's too, I was trying very hard to be direct, but also kind. He went, he got very, very upset, very, very upset. Um, saying I was dumping him, telling him my, you know, all, telling me all these things. He said, I was, you know, a liar. My stories were inconsistent. All these, you know, all the stuff I had not heard yet. Like he said, um, he said, I can't believe you would do this to me after all the hours and hours I spent listening to your dramas and crises. And 
And I thought, whoa, like this is, you know, he had spent hours and hours listening to me because he wanted to talk every night for hours and hours. And we did. Um, and yeah, there are dramas and crises. I have children with special needs and a serious job and it's a pan- global pandemic and the world is falling apart. So yeah, but I in no way felt that I was, you know, using him or, you know, uh, or, you know, being inappropriate. So I said, you know, I said, this is just, and he's screaming that I'm dumbing. And I said, you, Simon, you need to, this is not how adults respond. This is not it. And then he hung up on me. I was like, okay, dodged a bullet. And about a month and a half, two months went by. And I was thinking more every day. I was thinking, God, and I was alone. My kids, you know, working remotely, struggling and lonely. And I thought to myself, you know, maybe I misjudged. And maybe this guy was my soulmate, all the things he said. Maybe this was right. Maybe I totally, you know, maybe, maybe there's no crime in being a poor man because it's not his fault, right? I don't, you know, I can take care of everyone. So I contacted him. And his, his silence until this point was strategic as well. Let it be known. This was not silence. It was like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm taking space for, you know, whatever he might say. It was, it works. It works. And he, yeah. Like, like there's no apology in between everything. No, and yeah, no, everything, everything no. and all of the feelings you're feeling are on your plate and you're cycling through everything that's being said, analyzing the truth of what yes. is the truth and Mm-hmm. You know, uh, the first thing I want to say to everyone who's listening, that first thing you did, that what was the comment that you that you made? You'll figure something out. You'll, you're smart. You'll figure something out. Everyone listen to that one and put that in your arsenal because that is the perfect thing to say. Yeah. And so many people struggle when – because you're sitting here and I, I'm a little bit like you in a way and – when someone comes out with like a perfect pitch like that and you know it's coming, you know it's coming, you can feel it and you're, you're already before it's coming, you're trying to figure out how do I rebut this? How do right. I shoot? it's on the phone so it's fast. Yeah. You're, right. you're trying to figure out how do I shoot this down because that guilt that's going to hit me is going to be a real it's not just a punch in the gut it's an uppercut to the it's a combination and you're being set up properly right and and this is someone who knows that guilt works right they know it's like they've set a program in your brain hit the start button and walked away right so they know that the guilt is there and the phone call is also important because people who want you to catch you call you someone who someone who doesn't want to catch you will text because then you have time to think but a phone call you can't so but he didn't know that I was, I, I, you know, I can sense precarity and I have children and there's no way. So that, so then, you know, I, and the whole time, this whole time, there was never, I, I just felt guilty. I felt this when I did contact our reach, I said, Hey, you know, I've been thinking about you. I'm sorry. What happened? I hope you're all right. And we started talking and, and it was never, I never said for a moment, you were a bastard on the phone to me with the things you said. I didn't say any of that. I just said, Oh my God, this is all my fault. I feel so bad. Can you forgive me? I took all the responsibility and all the guilt because I was, because I was the bad actor. Right. And this is something you're going to see as the story goes on. I was the bad actor. I was the person who did the bad thing, who ended the relationship for whatever reason. And he just sat there like a turtle on his back. Right. So I accepted all responsibility. I listened to the shame narrative by which I was told about all the, you know, how all the pain he'd been through and all the hurt I'd caused and everything bad his friends had said and everybody hated me and things. And then, you know, he, we had to think about it and then we decided to get back together. And I was overjoyed, you know, 
But keep keep in mind, every time you go back, you go back one lower. Because now you've been shamed. And the power, I mean, the turtle on its back has a lot of power. I go back to that vulnerability piece. I go back to that harmlessness. The turtle on his back has all the power. Just like if you, I don't know if you have children, but when my children were born, I mean, I had these little like seven and a half pound creatures that dictated my life 24 hours a day. They had total power. It is like that. It is just like that. So I went back and I went lower this time. Um, the, the intensity of everything picked up emotional intensity, also frequency, texting, calling, you know, that kind of stuff, which I loved. I love a relationship with lots of contact, right? I love, I want phone calls every day. I want the text every day. I want, I mean, I want all that stuff. I love that stuff. And there's not, there's no crime in that. There's no crime in wanting and loving those things, but it was, it was, it was something was up. But I, of course, by that point, I had already accepted the shame and the guilt, and I was so grateful to have him back, so I just went on with it. It was not long before he started talking about marriage. And I, of course, was delighted because I had this, I'd always wanted the fairy tale. I always wanted it, and he knew this. And he, but he talked about it all the time, and I kept wondering, you know, gosh, you know, uh, you know why, if you want marriage to Bentley, why didn't you ask this previous woman to marry you? Why didn't you do And there was always a story about why it wasn't right. And it's because I was the golden person and that I was, you know, the, the true, true love and everything else, which is a lovely thing for anyone to say. Um, and, you know, he asked me if I would marry him. And I said, yes, I would. And I said, well, you know, I need to come visit and we need to do a proper engagement and then we can tell our family and our friends. And I hadn't told anybody. We kept everything very, you know, down low. And um, within, I want to say, maybe a week and a half after he had asked me to marry him and I had said yes. And I was so excited, but at the same, I was excited, but at the same time, there was something like a little tickle, like a rock in my shoe, like something was, you know, and not in retrospect, like it was definitely there. He texted me. Um, there was a whole sort of flurry of text about his financial dilemmas. Um, you know, I'd say, Oh, how are you? What's, you know, good morning. I love you. Um, and he would say, Oh my God, I was up all night. I couldn't sleep. I had these anxiety and depression and I can't pay my bills and I don't need money. And I was like, Holy crap. And it was on text. So I said, you know what? You need to take a break, take a deep breath. Like, you know, you need to generate more income. Like this can be handled. It can be just, I wish I could, you know, I wish I could just wave a magic wand and help you, but you know, you're, you're going to figure it out. Okay. Okay. The next day, another text, but this time he says, oh, you know, I've solved the problem. I'm going to file for bankruptcy. And I said, wow. And I could just, I was just like, I could feel my stomach sink. And I thought, okay. I said, you know, this is a lot and it's heavy and it's emotionally heavy. It's not your fault because I mean, under capitalism, things are shit for a lot of people. And this is not, you know, being poor is not a crime. Being poor is not a crime. Debt is not a crime. It, it, It happens. It happens to everyone, especially now. And so I said, you know, you need to be gentle with yourself. You need to talk to the therapist. You need to do all these new things. And he, and he just kept going and being like, no, I'm, I, I, this makes me feel better. I'm going to talk to this person. I'm going to start the ball rolling. And he said, and of course, I'll consult with you. And I said, do not consult with me. I don't know anything about any of this. So again, pushing back the whole conversation. I, I read it over. I could see myself pushing back. And then, can I call you? Can you talk now? I, and, I, and again, I don't want to cast aspersions because it is entirely possible that I have misread everything and this was all innocent and seeking comfort. However, in my heart, I knew that the ask was coming. And so I said, no. I said, I can't talk. I'm waiting for telehealth, which was not a lie. It was true. It was just several hours later. I had a cold. I was at home. And um, 
He said, okay, well, you know, I'll talk to you later. And I was just like, oh God, here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. But again, I rebuffed that again. Um, a couple, you know, I, I, I traveled out, we got engaged. I told my parents they were horrified and they, my mother said, what on earth? And my brother, same thing. What is this? And I said, oh no, he's a wonderful man. And he'll, he'll come to and take care of me and the girls. Like who else would ever do that? What other man would ever want to do that? Why would I'm such a burden? You know, um, I internalized a lot of popular cultural narratives about you know, my own worth, which are bullshit, but that also went into that. And I think a lot of that was actually reinforced, to be honest with you, in some of the conversations I had with him. So, um, but I was like, oh no, it's going to be fine. 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 And we told our friends, everyone was happy because, you know, I mean, he'd had a really hard time. I'd had a really hard time. They're like, oh, this will be great. Right. And who's going to say anything? It later turns out that several of our common friends actually um, kind of met in little groups and said, do we tell her what we know? And they elected not to. And they did the right thing because you can't, you, I mean, they didn't want to burst my bubble or destroy my happiness. They didn't want to tell tales out of school. They wanted to be appropriate. And also people make mistakes and you need to give people the grace and the space to overcome them and have new things. And they didn't want to, you know, they did the right thing. But knowing now it's very validating for me to know that, yeah, other people were concerned. So, um, you know, fast forward to the winter, um, you know, we continue to sort of do wedding preparations such as they were under COVID. There were more sort of financial emergencies that I ignored or kind of tamped down and said, figure it out, figure it out. Um, a lot of weirdness with that. And, you know, things kept moving on. And as things were moving on, it occurred to me that I was paying for absolutely everything. And part of this was because I made more money. At the end of the day, I made more money and I wanted to haul my weight and I wanted to, and he was, but he had also done a masterful job of telling me endlessly how poor he was, how he struggled, how he needed this, how he needed that, how he didn't have and how he had never had. And so, of course, I wanted to do everything I possibly could and pay for everything I possibly could because I could, right? Because I could. Um, I know now that a better man would not have allowed me to that a better man or a better partner, regardless of their gender, would not have allowed me to put, to, to just fill in the gaps. And he would say things like, oh, you know, I want to contribute, but then, you know, like he, I wanted him to spend time getting to know my children before the wedding, but he, you know, he couldn't, he traveled out once, like he couldn't make it work to come out more than that. Um, because he couldn't afford it or he couldn't take time over, he couldn't do this. There were a lot of excuses and they were all plausible excuses. That's the thing. They're all plausible excuses. Um, but then he would buy like a $300 garment. You know what I mean? So it would be, it was, it was enough that I was kind of like something's going on. Yeah, actions are not matching words. No, they are not matching words. And he was not a person. And the thing is, I believe that, that he is in his heart. He is a good person. I believe the good person is in there. I do. I think that there's a lot going on that I will never understand and I don't want to understand. But I do think that that was, there was something going on with that. But there was a, there was a sort of priority system that felt adolescent to me. And I'm thinking, you know, it was just, and I just, I, something wasn't, it wasn't right. And it wasn't even that the actions weren't matching the words. How I felt was not matching his words. Because here was this man who was telling me everything I have ever wanted a romantic partner to say to me in my entire life. It was so perfect. It was almost too perfect, you know? And, I, but I didn't feel that way. Like he would say these beautiful things and I would feel like, 
I don't know. It, it, it was very strange. It was very, very strange. But then I thought, oh, well, maybe I'm one of these women. This is it. Like I bought into the popular cultural narrative. Maybe I'm one of these women who um, is afraid of, 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 of love, who's afraid of a man she doesn't have to chase, which is bullshit. But I was like explaining, trying to rationalize what I was, what I was feeling. What were some of the things he was saying? Oh, just, you know, endless stuff about how um, special I was, how much he loved me. I mean, any, any, basically any critique that anybody had ever offered me in my life, which he knew because I told him everything, um, he turned on its head and told me the opposite. So this is, this is an important distinction. I felt treasured and worshipped as I have never, I mean, I felt like I could just be and do anything. But there comes a point when someone tells you something along the lines of you're the best person who has ever lived. That makes it you uncomfortable. And I, he would say things that were like that. And it was just, it was, he was just trying to flatter me for whatever purpose. Maybe he loved me. Maybe he wanted things. I don't know. But I told him, I said, that's like, I'm just a person. I'm just a person. I'm an ordinary human being and I make mistakes and I'm not perfect. But the idea of being so very, very perfect rubs you the wrong way after a certain, after a time, right? Because I am not perfect. I'm, I'm, everyone has, has done bad things. Everybody makes mistakes. Everybody is imperfect. I'm deeply imperfect. You know, I, I'm a sinner like everyone, right? So to be held up in that way reminds you of the distance that you have to fall when you are no longer perfect. And that was unsettling. So uh, tell us what happened when you were in the process of uh, getting married. So here's what happened. So we, um, we were getting married. Um, I was having a lot of difficulty with one of my children. Um, I have a child who has significant, significant special needs and things were just, you know, incredibly hard and it was COVID and it was one of the other. And um, I was getting married outside of the city where I live to be near him because I wanted to, you know, I wanted to make it as easy as possible for a lot of factors that I won't get into here. But, um, you know, I wasn't in a good, good state. I was not in a good state on the wedding day at all, at all. I wasn't, I didn't have my children. I was desperate to have anyone with me. I was alone. Um, and I, and this, none of these things were his fault. These were conditions I agreed to, but again, I agreed to them in the same way. I agreed to everything else. Like I can see the antecedents of how those, those thought processes happened. Like he's too poor. He can't do this. He's, you know, I mean, when the turtle's on his back, you'll do anything for the turtle. And then you discover the turtle put itself on its back, you know? So, and, and again, I was thrust, it's sort of like when, you know, he filed for bankruptcy, I was thrust into a role of total responsibility and I wanted to support him and I wanted to help him. I wanted to do those things, but I didn't want to have a fourth child. And that's what I got. Um, not to demean him, but that was the, it was the, the function of responsibility and weight. So, you know, I was a mess around the wedding and a better man I know now, I know now I'm having experienced better. Um, a better man would have said, you know what? You are a giant freaking mess. Like we need to postpone. I don't want my bride to be a basket case. He did not do this because he was on a clock. And what was this clock? He was on a clock, you know, his bankruptcy had come through. He needed, he needed to be financially saved. He needed all of these things. He was very, he wanted to, I mean, he wanted the ready-made family for which he didn't have to do any work. He wanted um, the, um, you know, and I'm not fabulously wealthy, but I own my home and I, you know, pay my mortgage. Um, So he wanted those things. And the, and I, I look back now and I see that it was, 
you know, he wanted the emotional stuff that we all want, but he also wanted the security. And I was happy to offer that security, but it was almost that that was more important than anything else. And that was deeply disconcerting, but you know, I loved him. And I thought to myself, you know, the timing's not great, but it's COVID. (laughs) It's this, it's that. So I will go through with it. And he was so happy and, and it broke, it, it would have broken my heart to not, you know, he was so happy. And I did, I did. I mean, so at the end of the day, even though I know that I was fleeced and had um, in so many ways, my, I did love him. And that love was, was real and it was genuine. And I have paid the, I have paid the price in spades for that, but I, I didn't want, I, I didn't want to, to throw away something beautiful. And so I went, I went through with that. I did. And afterwards I was happy and I, you know, I was, I was delighted on my wedding day and I got there and I went through and did things, but something wasn't right. Something wasn't right. It wasn't right. So what happened, you know, after you got married, did he, does he file for bankruptcy and what happens with the bank? He filed prior. He filed some months prior to when we got married and it was all taken care of. And, you know, on one hand, it's a, if you have significant debt, it's a responsible thing to do to make sure that you can dispose of that and address it prior to getting married, because then when you marry, it becomes also your spouse's problem. But that wasn't what he was doing. Absolutely not. He was looking for a financial solution. So what are the repercussions to you or the family unit after that happens? Um, after the bankruptcy or after the marriage? <laughs> uh, after the, the bankruptcy. No, there are no ramifications. There's no ramifications. Okay. No ramifications for me. However, however, I did some research because I was, I mean, I have children who need to go to college, right? At least two of them. And I have, I mean, and I'm, I'm in a very precarious position, very precarious. Um, and so I, and I've worked very, very hard. My, I mean, everybody works hard, but I've worked very hard my entire life to provide for these children and, you know, my own life. And, um, and it has been a thankless siege. And I, I was a little concerned. So I reached out and I thought, okay, it doesn't, like a bankruptcy doesn't actually affect the spouse unless you have a joint account. You can have no joint accounts because as soon as you share an account, their credit rolls onto yours, you know? Um, and so I said, okay, well, you know, there's going to be ramifications for us, like in terms of like buying a bigger house, like doing all these, there's going to be serious ramifications. But I had already thought, okay, I'm marrying a poor man and there are ramifications for that, but he is worth it because I love him. And are the debts that he has disclosed to you? And if so, I had no, I had no part of it because we weren't married at the time and I didn't ask for any information, although he would have given it, I'm sure. Okay. Yeah. He was not in any way secretive. Um, If anything, he was excessively transparent in a selective way so that it was, I felt reassured. Okay. But like, like there's a reason for like, uh, I had to do pay for this because of this terrible thing that happened. And now that's always, there were always reasons. Oh, and a lot of them believable and a lot of them real. But you know what? That's the thing. There are enough real things. And I don't believe he ever lied to me. I just think he was selective and manipulative. And that's the difference because I can suss out a lie. But so there weren't lies. It was just it was just the way that it was played to me and also perspectival things that there isn't a clear, a clear truth. But he pushed constantly for a joint for joint checking. That was something he mentioned several times. And I told him, I said, no, we can't do that because of your bankruptcy. Don't don't you remember this? And no, 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 that's not true. I said, yes, it is. Here is the proof. And so he, he dropped it. But that would become a thing in the, in the future. That would become a thing in the future. You know, also as a feminist, as someone who believes in sort of gender equality and escaping from a sort of a, a very rigid sort of 
a nuclear family orientation where the man has to do this and woman has to do this, that I, I thought, okay, there is no reason why I don't, I can't be the breadwinner. And I would have loved to have given him the chance to not work for some time to try to get his dreams to come true in these ways. And I wanted that for him so badly. You know, I saw him, um, and this isn't to, you know, paint myself as Jesus or anything, but I think, uh, you know, a healthy relationship pattern you see your partner, not just as who they are, but also all the shining things about them. You construct them generously, right? I constructed him generously, very generously, because I saw the potential and the beauty in him. And I still see that. It's still there. Um, he did not construct me that way. It was facile. It was flattery. And in the end, it was extremely damaging. So after you get married... Uh, is anything good for a while or, or what? after we get, well, I mean, there was hardly any time after we get married, I went back home and he drove out to come live with me and my children, my children who he did not know my children who said, you know, who, of course they just want me to be happy. So they would have agreed to anything and they're agreeable, wonderful kids. But they said, you know, he, they, we, we were just side characters, mom. And they were right. Um, he came out as soon as he got here, it felt wrong. It felt so wrong. It felt so wrong. And I could not stop crying. And I, t- I t- and I, my heart broke because I didn't want to hurt. I mean, I never wanted to hurt him. I still don't. Um, but I couldn't stop crying. And um, I finally, after 10 days, I-, I told him, I said, this is wrong. I know why. And I had made excuses. Oh, maybe it's my allergy medication. Maybe it's this. Maybe it's the heat. Maybe it's mm-hmm. I told him, I said, this is, this feels wrong. We need to get an annulment. This is wrong. It doesn't feel right to me. And I was sobbing just hysterically sobbing. I was so heartbroken because I loved him and I wanted it to work and I wanted it more than I've ever wanted anything. But something was wrong. Something was so wrong and I felt it. And I didn't make it up. And no matter what he said later on, I'm not crazy. I felt it. And when I told him, he became so angry, so explosively, explosively angry that I and I got my kids out of the house before I did any of this. I remember sitting in the bedroom and just looking at the floor and trying to stay very, very still. I know at one point he was in the yard, he was outside and I had to take something outside and he was outside in the yard and he was screaming at me about what I had done. And I said, I was just like, the neighbors are here. The windows are open. You have got to come inside. You've got to come inside, please, baby. Just please come on. Let's talk about it inside. And I was trying to get him inside and I just felt like, oh my God, what have I brought into my children's home? What have I done? And I understand anger and I understand disappointment. I understand heartbreak, but this was something else. And it was terrifying. Um, Not, I mean, he did, there was a time when he was a little bit, you know, he maybe was trying to be a little physically intimidating, but I wasn't having that. Like he doesn't know whose child I am. No. Um, So that didn't work because the harder he pushed with that, the calmer I got, the stronger I got, the clearer I got that it was an emergency and I needed to get him out of the house. Um, Just, I can't explain to you, you know, he talked about having rights as my husband. He had a right to my house. He had a right to me. He had a right to this. He had a right to that. He would sleep in my bed at night while we were trying. I mean, it was days and days and we were trying to work this out. And he'd wake up in the morning and glare at me with his eyes like slits. And I would run to the other part of the house. It was awful. And I hadn't told anyone because I wanted to respect his privacy. And I wanted us to come to a narrative together to explain this to our friends in a coherent way. Because that's when couples in relationships, you have a state, like your joint statement. Like, this is what happened. Please respect our privacy. We part with love. We part with fondness. It just didn't work out. And I, so I didn't tell anybody. I had no support. None. 
were you feeling embarrassed that you're in this spot or shame? No, no, no. Okay. I, I wasn't feeling embarrassment or shame. I was, it was an emergency. Okay. It was like later the embarrassment, guilt and shame came. I got a year of that, but this was an emergency. Your gut feeling was reinforced immediately, immediately. when you said immediately. no. Immediately. And I didn't say, no, I hate you. You know, fuck up. I said, baby, I am so sorry. I love you so much, but this is wrong. It feels wrong. What's wrong about what he was so upset. So, and I understood that. And I said, oh my God, do you want to hug? Like, what can I do? And no, no, no. I mean, it's just, it was awful. It was absolutely awful. And, um, I did not know what to, to do. Um, but the things that he said and the ways that he spoke to me after I said it wasn't working, and I didn't feel right, were so frightening. And, uh, and they had a legal flavor. So I knew that some, I needed to move fast. And I could see now that this was strategic, right? It was love, but it was also strategy. He was a con man in, in a lot of ways. A lot of my friends have said this, yes. Um, so I'm, I, and then for a variety of reasons I won't get into, I was stuck in the house. I was stuck in my house for four days with this. Um, hiding, trying to you know do whatever I could. Um, I know now that by the second day after I told him this, he had talked to an attorney about finding a way to sue me for 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 um, failure to provide care or negligence or something. So I know that that's and that's not normal. That's not normal. That's not what you do when you love someone when it's not working out and she's crying. You don't call an attorney to see about suing her. So that was kind of the environment I was in. Um, I hadn't told anyone. And then one day, one afternoon, my phone started blowing up. And I was in my, I was right where I am right now. I was in my bedroom working, trying to focus, you know, everything was, it was bad. Trying to make a plan to help him land as softly as possible. Try, you know, try, I was, and I was doing it by myself, just trying, you know. And um, my phone started blowing up and it was my brother, my aunt and uncle, friends. What is going on? They said, what is going on? And I was like, what do you mean what's going on? I hadn't told soul. And they said, you need to look at social media right now. This is day four. And um, I went and I looked and he had put every detail of what had transpired between us on public social media, my colleagues, my friends, my family. This is how they all found out. We are not young people. We are middle-aged people. This is not the behavior of middle-aged professionals. It just isn't. Um, I was I was horrified. I was horrified, and it wasn't defamatory. It was not. An, it wasn't saying I was a horrible person. It wasn't telling anything, you know, in, off color. But it was private, very private. And it was intent. At first, I thought, "Oh my God!" You know, he was asking for help. He was asking his friends to help him, and I just thought. This is intended to embarrass me into retracting. And I had at that moment been thinking, maybe we need to go to couples counseling. Maybe we need to do something different. Maybe I need to slow down with this. But that, when that happened, I thought, this is a dangerous child. And I must extract him. And I did. And I had to be quite forceful. Because being in that home with him by yourself, no mm-hmm. one knowing what's going on, no one. Not really knowing fully what he's capable of and staying there for legal reasons. I have no idea how you were, how you went to sleep, really. I did, I did not. Um, I, um, I was full of love and pity for him. I was full of guilt. I was full of um, adrenaline. 
because I knew that I had brought something not great into my life in a way. And I just felt like, oh my God, what have I done? What have I done? What have I done? Um, And at the same time, I also felt responsible for him because I did love him and I wanted to do right by him to the greatest degree possible. But something I did tell a friend when, when the shit hit the fan, I said, you know, I am both the hostage and the negotiator. And I had, I was the only adult in the room. So, um, but I did get him to leave and then I changed the locks and I called my mother to come and I called friends to come and my friends drove from everywhere to come and stay in my house with me. Cause I was at that point, then the kind of everything came down and the crying started the crying and the, and the realizing what I had lost, you know, because there's a loss there. There's a serious, I mean, I love this man. I love this man enough to die for him. Like I would have done anything for him, but to realize that this was a viper in my bosom was a horrible, horrible feeling. And it does nothing to diminish the love you feel for them, but Holy crap. Had, had I been, it was, it was, it was the most horrible experience. It really was. So after he's uh, in the hotel, he's extracted, people have come to your aid. Uh, What happens with your relationship from there? Well, this is a horrible, this is a horrible thing. Remember I said I went back twice. Mm-hmm. It was awful. Um, a series of horrible things transpired. Um, he did demand significant money from me because he felt that I owed him for his trouble. I worked very quickly to make sure that he could land back in his situation in his home with his support network as quickly and as seamlessly as possible. I put a lot of work into it, but that was not good enough. Um, and it, I, I would say that it was extremely manipulative the way that I was, the way that that was done. Um, and I don't know, a better man would never have taken money from a woman with children. I mean, it's just, it's unconscionable. Um, my family were incensed. They were just, they said, this is not, you know, the mark of a, of a, quality relationship is not just what's happening when it's good. It's even when it ends, you have a responsibility to be, to care for one another and to treat people with decency. And I, I have to say, I did bend over backwards doing that. Um, a series of events happened. It was perfectly awful. Um, uh, trying to get his things sent back to him. Try, I mean, I, of course, volunteered paying a huge amount of money to move his, his things back, you know, managing this. I managed everything because I was the only adult in the room as usual. And um, I cried every day. I was, uncon- I, I missed him. I loved him. I, I, you know, at this point, I think it was like a function of like, we went to trauma bonding, right? Well, at this point, you're an addict. And, yes, and- at this point, I'm an addict. And I had been spoon fed all this time, the drug, and I needed it. And the withdrawal was heavy, even though I knew I, I did the thing I had to do for my children, for my family, for everything. It was horrible. Yeah. So you're... In this withdrawal, you're paying him off, which huge amounts of money. Yes. Some people might think that's crazy to do, but in this case, you don't want the drugs to come back, and you're just like, if I give this here, it's over, and I can get. The- I know, but it's also guilt. It's also guilt. Like this, the whole thing was about. Here's this horrible thing you've done to me. This awful person. I need money. Give it to me, or I will give it to me, or I will not. Well, I will not. I will inflict legal damage. So there's also a threat and, and, and guilt. So you are. So there's those two things going on. Yeah. The old you is not there. You're really twisted around here and you're fighting like three different 
things that are going on between guilt, threats, and withdrawal. Um, and and so that's happening here. And you know, you've there's this part of you that still thinks he's a good person. So with everything that's happened so far and you trying to take care of yourself, you're trying to take care of him a lot, even though these things are going on. What is, I guess, the, the crux of where your programming runs into each other, if that makes sense? You know, the worst injury is a moral injury where you feel like you were asked to, to do something against everything, your, your core beliefs in order to, for example, save your children. And that, to some degree, I did have to do that. But, I, you know, I've made peace with it in the sense that um, one of my children wrote a little bit of a report on a related topic for school. And uh, her teacher called me up and said, you know, you need to read the dedication on her project. And I said, okay, I'll read it. And the dedication was to my mother, who was brave and acted fast. She burned herself to save us. And of course, I was the waterworks came, but that was all the redemption I needed. You know, I did a thing that I hope no one ever has to do. You know, I had to watch this man I love sob in a pile in front of me and scream at me and tell me that I was a liar and a fraud. Um, but I behaved in a way that I behaved the best way I possibly could. I don't know if that answers your question. Uh, oh, no. I just want you to know that everything is okay and the way you yeah. acted was okay. Yeah. And it's okay to hate them if you want to, you know? I'm not capable of it, unfortunately. <laughs> It'd be easier if I could hate him. But, you know, I am... Um, at the end of, you know, what is it that, uh, is it Reinhold Niebuhr says, you know, forgiveness is the final act of love. And so, and I believe that. But anyway, before we get to that. You're a whole bunch just of a things. really good person. Oh, I'm not. I'm actually not. I'm remarkably terrible, but I try. <laughs> I try. I really do. I'm a terrible person. I've done. And you haven't even heard the worst part. The worst, the worst is yet to come. Okay. You know, tell, it, tell us, tell us everything. I, I gave him money because I felt bad. Um, I, you know, he complained more. I felt even more guilty. I gave him more money. Um, I, I was in a terrible, unbelievable position as things continued to go badly for him. And I felt I had people telling me how things were so I could make sure he was taken care of. It was just awful. About a month and a half later, I had to contact him because of one of these things that had happened. And here's a moment where you break no contact. You start talking to this person once again. And you start to second uh, guess yourself and you get back to uh, together with this person. So what does your family uh, and friends think about this? I said, I told my friends and my family, just give me some grace because I'm trying. I want this to be okay. And I wanted it to be okay. I just wanted everything to be okay. You know what I mean? You want it to be okay. I didn't want to believe that I was being, that I had, this dangerous child was the person I had married. Like I, I wanted everything to be okay. I wanted the fantasy. I wanted it all to be real. And um, it only took, it took a few days before I realized I had made a horrible mistake. It's like... It's exactly like being a drug addict when you know you're trying to stay away from it. You stay away, you stay away, you're doing great. And then one day you meet up and it's right in front of your face and you know not to do it. And then you do it 
And then the next morning you wake up feeling terrible. And it's not just terrible from how you feel from it being in your system. It's because you were doing so well for so long. You were doing great. And now all it takes is that one moment and the way you feel about yourself It's just a low sometimes. It's hard to explain to people what that low is. But it it, it is a real low and you are on an island by yourself and you Mm -hmm. start blaming yourself for being weak for all of these things. And it's a dark, dark, lonely place to be. And if he had been abusive, if he had been, he was never anything but he was manipulative. But he just adored me until I said no. And that made it very, very confusing because I was thinking, what am I doing? Like, I found someone who adores me, who wants to take care of me. He wants to do these things. But why would I throw that away? And of course he got mad. But I forgot everything that happened. I forgot about being afraid in my house. I forgot about how it was an emergency. I forgot about how he had demanded money from me. I'd forgotten about how he had called an attorney to sue me for negligence. Like, these are not things that people who love you do. I had forgotten about all of it. I forgot all of it. But I am a meticulous record keeper. And I'd written it all down. And so the next time around, I found it. And I remembered. Because we did reconcile. And he did come back. And it did happen again. Immediately. Immediately. He came back. I was determined this was going to be great. I had done, I mean, I got in front of all the problems. Like all I figured out what I thought the problems were. You know, the house is too small. There's this problem. This problem. I got in front of it. I, I threw money at it. I got, I, I set everything up. I tried everything. The joint checking account thing that he wanted so much. I did it. I did it. I set up, I put him on my checking account. Because I thought that that would be a sign of my commitment. I thought it would be better. And it's what he wanted. I was like, bankruptcy be damned. I'll just do it. Um, however, when I got back from our reconciliation and the plane landed at the airport, um, I had a call from the bank. And they said, you know, we can't add your husband to your checking account. And I said, why not? They said, oh, there's a little paperwork error. So when things get delayed here with everything and the processing error happens, uh, your ex starts acting up using guilt and questioning you. Uh, But this is stuff that you really can't control. And once again, this is a good example of that when a no happens or a perceived no or a delay in whatever plans in their mind, like what, what he has going on in his brain of how things should go, that there's a perceived no in some sort of way here. So he acts out here and rages out, uh, which obviously is is pretty quick to happen. Uh, again, everything that happens seems to be pretty quick. So uh, what's going on with you in this situation again, um, having it happen so quickly? And uh, what are you thinking? And what what are you feeling? It was enough that I was like, something's wrong. Um, and I said, I'm so sorry. I know we've been here before, but I, 
we, this has got to be the last time because I can't, you know, and I felt I just, the depths of guilt were awful and I was crying and I was miserable. And I said, I feel like such a bad person. And of course I will try to make this right by you in whatever way I possibly can, because I feel terrible, but I can't lie to you. This is wrong. Um, and I don't know what it is about when he came into my space, other than that I felt in danger. I felt something was wrong. Um, at that point, he started screaming at me that he wanted access to the marital assets. And he would get it whether I wanted him to or not. If I ran out in the street and called my friend at the police department and said, can he actually do this? Because he says he has rights as my husband. And my friend at the police department said, no, he can't do any of that stuff. And what are you doing back with this guy? And he said, you know, we're going to call the bank and make sure they know what he looks like and that he's going to come and he might try to file that paperwork, but he's not going to have access to anything. But it was, it was very frightening. So after this event occurs, how do you finally get rid of him? So after this event occurs, um, it was catastrophic um, in terms of just the amount of rage um, the, the threats, the threats, um, I want access, I write to your husband, I want access to the marital assets. I mean, yeah, no, um, there are many, many other pieces of money, like, uh, you know, that trans, that changed. I gave him a huge amount of money because when he arrived, he just said he didn't have any money and he had an overdraft on his bank account and he had all these other things. And so I just constantly shoveled money at him. And it got to, and I was also managing a situation with my child again. And at one point I was taking calls from him and from her. And it was just, I felt, and I thought, this is just bad. This is just bad. But I held on, I held on, I held on. My child said she was uncomfortable with him in the house, which is understandable because she didn't know him. Right. So my child said that she was uncomfortable and he hadn't done, I want to say he hadn't done anything to the, she was lovely to the children. When my child said that, and I told him, he said, you know, you are my wife and this is my home and I am not leaving. And I just thought, that's not the response. That's not good. Like go somewhere for a couple hours, like give her some space. You're in her tiny house. Um, and so that's when I started saying, you know, I just don't know about this. I don't know. And then he erupted just ra- screaming, you are a fraud. You're a liar. I don't know you. I'm, you know, um, I'm going to get access to the marital assets. I never would have come out here if you hadn't promised me assets. Like I never, I mean, I never would have come back to you if you hadn't had, you know, financial incentives. Um, You know, it was absolutely awful. And I don't even remember some of the things that he said, but I know I was so terrified, not of physical violence, but just of being just the the endless barrage of what a bad person. I mean, just, it it was, you know, he knew from the first time he knew that the physical intimidation was not going to work. But he was not like that, but he did know that the way in was guilt and shame. He knew that, and he put it on very, very heavily. I was so upset, and so, the stomping and the glaring and the, his anger and the you know, unwillingness to talk about anything, um, I got my children out of the house in basically the middle of the night. Um, I hid every bank register, every check, everything, tax form, everything. I hid them. I hid everything and I got out of there and I left. This time I left. I left him. I seated the house. I just left. I left. Um, He wanted more money, of course. And so I offered him money because I wanted to try to make it right. I was like, I'll give you this money. I've borrowed this money. I'll give you this money I've borrowed to try to help you get back on your feet because I'm sorry this happened again. Then he asked for it in cash because I wasn't trustworthy. 
And so I brought him the cash and we had this whole conversation over several days wherein he was talking, he had like this envelope of cash sticking out of his pocket. And we were having this conversation about what a bad person I was. And he told me, you know, if I do this horrible thing, which is in the relationship, if I do this horrible, terrible thing, um, you know, I will be broken forever. I will be damaged and I will never heal. My children will be damaged and they will never heal. He will be damaged and he will never heal. But he just, it was just wave and wave of you will be destroyed. You'll be damaged. He said, you know, um, uh, you're never going to find anyone. You're going to die alone. He basically took down a litany of every frightening, every fear I ever had. Every fear I ever had and trotted it out to make him, to scare me into staying with him. He even said that, he said, well, you know, everyone says you're crazy. But he was, he was pulling out all the stops to frighten me. And he would say, I mean, this was days, it was days of this. Um, and I cried and I listened. And I said, um, he would say, you know, you're not trustworthy. You're a terrible person. And I would say, yes, I'm not trustworthy. I'm a terrible person. I would repeat it back. Um, and it just went on and on and on and on. And, but I, and every time I got almost to the brink of being like, you know what? I love you. Let's work it out. He would say something. And I would think this is not a person who can be in my child's life. I had been so afraid of him that I had promised him more money if he would leave. Even And he accepted that, even though he knew that I had had to borrow the money to pay him. So when he left, I was hysterical. I had to have people come and stay. I've, I've never unraveled before, but I did. And I remember having to hold on to the furniture. Like, I mean, I, I was absolutely hysterical. I couldn't believe what I had done. I couldn't believe that I'd had to do it. I couldn't believe that I had perpetuated this great evil on this poor person. You know, I felt awful. About three weeks later, I had a lecture I had to give out of town. And it was the first sort of professional lecture I'd given since everything went south. And I, I can't explain to you the state that I was in at this point, um, what that four days in the house with him was was like. And also just the fact that I, I mean, I emptied out every account I have to pay him um, and then pay the attorney, which I had to, you know, because somebody's got to do the divorce. And I, I'm the adult, so I did it. Um, so I was on this trip, and I was giving a very fancy lecture one night. And he knew this because he was supposed to go on this trip with me. And just dumb luck, I used somebody else's computer that night because of the projection system. So when an email comes up on my personal computer, a crawler comes out across the top and tells me what the email is and who it's from. So right after my talk started, and he would have known when this was, an email titled Healing came from him. Healing was the title. Um, I did not read it until the next morning because a series of other events. But when I read it, I got through the first paragraph and I threw up. It was basically an email about how I was the worst person who had ever lived. And a detailed account of every painful thing he had been through. And I was nothing short of suicidal after I read the first couple of paragraphs. Um, I immediately responded via voice memo, via email, telling him how sorry I was, how I felt awful, how I would try to make it right, how I was full of regret and pain. And I had been suffering and he wasn't the only person suffering. I had been suffering. My children had been suffering. It had been awful. He never responded because it wasn't communication. It was a weapon. You know, a lot of men, when you leave them and they don't like it, they come after you with a gun or an ax or a hatchet, but he came after me with words. 
And um, because that's his weapon and his own vulnerability because it broke my heart. And um, I managed to get home when the black cried on the plane. Stewardesses asked me if I was okay. I I said, I'm not. (laughs) I'm not. I've sent what he wrote me to my therapist and to my advocate. I have a court appointed um, advocate. Um, And my therapist said, you know, you must never read this in its entirety. And no one who ever loved you could have ever written anything like this to you. It was so vicious. And it was the turtle on its back, but like weaponized, right? So, you know, he never responded to me. He did share what I said, my response with other people. Um, and that got back to me. But that was, that was it. That was it. That's when it came out. That's the, cru- the cruelty. The, uh, I, can't ex- I can't express in words what this kind of psychological torture does to a person. And it is torture. It is torture, but it is the only weapon he has and his only known response to adversity. So in the aftermath, dealing with shame and guilt at the same time, where did you begin and how do you and your therapist work through it? Well, you know, the first thing I would tell anybody is like, get an army of therapists. Um, you know, I, I immediately, I knew that I was outmatched. I mean, I am a competent person um, who was born happy, but I knew that this was something that was bad. And so I immediately sought out a therapist who specialized in um, in trauma, who was aware of what trauma was and who was aware of what narcissistic stuff is. Um, I had another therapist who I've been working with for years, so I continued to meet with. And I, um, at the urging of my rabbi, I, um, I reached out to a women's shelter to get specific support from a domestic violence advocate. And I felt a little bit off with that because I, you know, I didn't want to cheapen the experiences of women who had endured things far more physical and graphic. And I mean, this was like, eight days total. But um, when I talked to my advocate, she's like, yeah, I mean, she said, this is psychological torture. That's what this is. And um, you, and you survived and we're going to work with it. So that's what I did is I, I, I looked everywhere I could. I read everything I could get my hands on. I saw a lot of therapists and I worked, I worked through it and um, it's been a, it's been a year and some change. And just to clarify for everyone, the eight days is when you're actually physically living with each other physically in, in, the, in house. the house yeah. and being there in um, really hostage for hostage, for those yeah. days. So when, you know, you're dealing with this, like, do you get waves you know, talking to me and discussing it is one thing. Do you, do you get waves of flashbacks where you kind of like hits you where it hurts, um, and you're just and you and you kind of like the steam gets taken out of you a bit. It was that way. It was um, for a long for about six months. I was well and truly completely disabled by this. Um, the most important thing I did, and this is the hard thing, and people will, because you'll do anything to maintain that connection, anything. The most important thing I did was no contact. And he, I mean, he cut, he blocked me. He cut off contact because that's his MO, right? Silence. He's stonewalling. 
you know, he's, it's maintaining power for him. But I stopped looking at his social media. I stopped, I told my friends who were informing, I said, I don't want to know. Um, I drew a line under it and I stopped and it took all the power away. Then I went through my house and I found every piece of paper, every article of clothing, anything at all that had any association with him whatsoever. And I incinerated it. So I got rid of every trace in my life, everything. Um, and I drew a line under it and I stopped looking. And that was the most important thing that I did in terms of reminding, because, because if you keep going, I mean, you keep going back or doing anything to maintain a connection, um, it's like picking the scab. And it was after, you know, a month or two of being like, of that, I remembered, wait a minute, I'm better than this. I'm so much better than this, than this sad, sad experience. And, you know, the last step of that for me um, was acknowledging, yeah, this horrible thing happened. Um, But it's like a shark attack, right? You know, it's actually just like a shark attack, right? They bump you a few times to see if your food and they eat you. But like a shark, like I can't blame the shark. I'm not, I'm going to get back in the water. I'm back in the water. I'm swimming. Everything is fine. I don't blame the shark. Um, But I know what to look for now. So uh, I guess my first question was about the shame. Uh, mm-hmm. So when it comes to guilt and mm-hmm. so you had this boundary and this boundary was a solid boundary. Mm-hmm. However, and you knew that a weakness for you is guilt. Yes. And that you were in a way uh, bypassing dealing with your guilt by having this boundary because you knew if that guilt button was pushed, you could succumb to it. So it's like you put up like a dam mm-hmm. and yeah. to stop the water. Mm-hmm. But if the water got through just a tiny yeah. bit, you were going to mm-hmm. have a major problem. So right. now that you're here, when it comes to guilt, when that water comes through, if there is a thing How do you deal or how are you working through the guilt instead of bypassing around it, if that makes sense? And is that something that you've worked on? Because in the grand scheme of things, that guilt is what he attacked in in a lot of ways. Yeah, It's his his weapon. And you were the perfect person. Perfect. I was perfect. I was tailor-made. I, you know, I really was, um, you know, in terms of the guilt now, like it does pop up every now and again, but I, I think about my children. That's what I do. I think about my children and I think about how, you know. Cause that guilt came from somewhere originated in you a very, very, very long time. Oh ago. yeah. It's, it's guilt because well, remember I told you about moral injury, right? Mm-hmm. And the moral injury is the worst injury because it's that you had to do something that violated your core values. And my core values are respect for the sanctity of marriage, my drive to protect the vulnerable and the weak. I had to violate both of these things. So when I think about that second one, because the marriage stuff doesn't inspire any guilt in me at all. (laughs) Like, no, because that's he, I did according to, you know, the laws of Judaism, there was no marriage, but the, the, the second piece about the weak, like when I think about him as weak and vulnerable, that's where the guilt comes from. Is that here's this person who was so vulnerable and loved me so much and I treated him in this way and I deserve suffering and pain because of the guilt. I think about that and then I think, you know, his vulnerability and guilt was a weapon 
like his use of my in my sense of guilt, which is, you know, it, it comes from that moral injury that was weaponized. And so in that sense, when I feel guilt, I'm doing his work for him. And I'm not doing that work anymore. So before we leave January, what are your words of wisdom or advice for everyone who's listening? My words of wisdom, well, first of all, if you are in this situation, go no contact. And I don't mean not contact them. I mean, don't even snoop, don't look. They are dead to you. That is the only way forward. And I resisted this for a long time, but it is true. The second thing that I would have everyone read is um, uh, Leslie Morgan Steiner's book, Crazy Love. Um, And I do not know her. This is not a plug. But she makes an interesting and fantastic point that when women are thinking about the men or the women who are are non-binary people, whoever it is, the romantic partners who will hurt you. It is not the man with the fists or the axe or the menacing appearance or the, you know, I mean, it's not the scary guy who's going to hurt you. It's the harmless guy. It's the sweet guy with the sad story who is harmless and vulnerable and himself a victim who wants you to save him and who you will stay with no matter what he does to you because he needs you. That is the man to be afraid of and to be avoided. It is the victim. It is the vulnerable narcissist that you need to watch out for. And so that is the biggest piece of advice that I would give people is nobody knows this, that that is where danger is. It's not with fists and anger and any of that. That's because they don't come at you with that. They come at you with a sad story and a broken heart. Well, January, it's been <laughs> six months, five, six months in the making. <laughs> Toda roba. Toda roba. <laughs> and you, you, we got here. How are you feeling right now? Feeling good. Yeah. Feeling good. I'm like flushed because it's like an emotional experience telling the story, but, um, you know, I um, the 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 you know, secrecy and silence aid the oppressor. And so, the more people that tell their stories, and you know, this kind of stuff happens. It can happen to anyone, man, woman, you know, whatever, whatever your profession is, whatever economic sphere you're in. So, the more people that tell their stories, you know, the less likely it is that other people will fall for, or perpetrate, or fail to see how they themselves be perpetrators in creating a situation like this. Well, January, I want to thank you for being a guest on our show today. You did a great job. So a big, big thank you from myself and from the whole community. And if you want to be a guest on our show like January was today, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there is a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our guest form page please read all the instructions and send us an email at narcissistapocalypse at gmail.com and also uh if you want to send in your stories we can never have enough stories um to uh, go through to put onto the show and what else do i have on my list here oh please leave us some reviews nice reviews five star reviews whatever service you use uh you know we can get all the all the reviews we need um i'm now mincing my words and tripping over them it's been a long day but please do leave us a review because it helps out our show when it comes to rankings and for people to be interested in our show if, they, if they're they looking for help. The more good reviews we have, the more they'll start listening to the show, the bigger the community can get, the more help people will, will get as well. So please uh, do that if you can. Also, if you need support, uh, we have at our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. 
our very own support group. We have meetings every Wednesday night, Thursday afternoon, and Saturday night. And we have our very own forum boards on there. We have ad-free episodes. We have episodes that never made it to air. And if you just want to support our show, please do join our support group because it helps us out a lot by joining our support group. It, It supports the show too. And if you need even more support, please do go visit our friends at domesticshelters.org. So they have articles and resources at domesticshelters.org to help you make sense of what you are going through. They have phone numbers and email addresses of every single shelter you can uh, think of in the United States and in Canada. And for domestic violence agencies, they have everyone on there. It's a great resource. It's a free resource. So please do go visit our friends at domesticshelters.org. And now that is it for today. So for myself and January, we hope you have a good night.